it's the sort of the attitude to making that if you just become totally absorbed, the art will take care of itself. Somehow things come together if you're if you're pushing in a particular direction. And time actually was really the material that I've been chewing through. Hello and welcome to The Common Creative. My name is Chris Meredith. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And we're on a mission to open up the conversation about creativity in Australia and beyond. And today's guest is the amazing Stephen Hart, one of Australia's foremost sculptures, a creative thoroughbred, if you like. Why is everyone going to be so excited by this conversation, Paul? Chris, and to paraphrase um, some of what Stephen says, it's a um, it's a conversation that opens the door to creativity. If you listen to the podcast, uh, to this interview, you'll understand exactly what we're talking about. But this is a mind that spends an enormous amount of time thinking as he is doing, and it gives great insights, not just into the creative process, but also into life. Absolutely. Let's get straight into it. Let's hear from Stephen. Yeah, let's get him on board. Great to meet you online, Stephen. Yes, Particularly as we've got three artists chatting to each other. This is going to be a nerdy, nerdy yeah. artist talk, I suspect. Well, this meeting online phenomenon is 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 the strangest thing about life now. I think this. Uh, we, uh, but go, yeah. So I mean, it's it's. Uh, it was nice to come down to um, Paul's studio to actually reflect his humanity as I as I. <laughs> Yeah, so this is this is an unusual recording because Stephen is sitting in my studio with me. But mm. it's great it's great to have you here and to have Chris Chris online. So we might just jump in now, uh, Stephen. You you've been a, a sculptor your whole life, and we have talked in the past about the fact that at various times in your career you've had to resort to mm. things using your craft, but not are not art. Mm. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about those times and the things that you did? Well, they. they... They began as soon as I made the commitment, really, that I was going to be this thing. I called myself a sculptor because an artist, artist seems too much. Um, but, you know, look, essentially I, I, I've been someone who, who makes things and um, so I generally figured that I could make things to make a, make a living and um, I've, I've sort of adapted myself to that along the way. Um, when I was going through art school, uh, which I started late, in, I, I started building gardens because I taught myself how to lay bricks and things like that. And I, was, I got very interested in Islamic bricklaying and all manner of things. And, and, you know, look, I've just adapted. And I've made the assumption that it, 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 it's the sort of the attitude to making that can kind of lead into art, that if you just become totally absorbed in the activity that um, but the art will take care of itself. Now, a lot of people would um, uh, argue with that, I suppose, but that, that, that's been my assumption, that it's, it, 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 it's the attitude that I bring to what I'm making. So, so that's allowed me to then go on and, you know, look, I had to make furniture and I started, I found people wanted doors at one stage and, and that sort of leads me, there's always a learning involved in these things because generally I start off and I don't know how to do something. Someone had asked me to make a set of doors and 
um, I thought, right, um, you've got to cut mortise and tenon um, in order to join timbers together. Well, the cutting of mortises and tenons is the initial part of carving. So once I'd cut six million mortises and tenons, I then thought, well, look, why don't I just go on and start carving into the, 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 the tenon? And that's sort of... You know, so one thing is kind of led on to led on to another, but there's just an ongoing learning. So that's so so literally uh, that was your door into creativity. Yeah, yeah. Look at, I mean, well, first of all, I sort of laid bricks into it. I think, but but, but yeah, I was very interested in the door because it seems to me that you know, like you're constantly walking through through doors in life. You just have to open one door and then you know walk a few paces and then there's the next one um and 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 you're constantly opening and closing doors to some part of your your life so it seemed to fit quite well actually to make make doors David, I was I was scouting around your very wonderful website and a bit of background to you, and it and it sounds like you, you, you there's there's some really powerful points that you make to explain your work and to uh, to express the points you're trying to get across. But I want to want to understand how you kind of juggle that idea, the kind of the big themes you're trying to communicate with the kind of commercial imperative of producing a work for a particular brief or perhaps a doorway for a particular client. How do you juggle those those two potentially conflicting With, with enormous difficulty, Chris, and I, I don't think, um, I mean, I live, I've got a, I, I somehow or other seem to absorb a Protestant work ethic. Now, I'm not a Protestant, but I mean, I've got a work ethic. So, but it, I don't have a business ethic to attach to that. So, you know, I start doing things and some Sometimes, by I would say divine providence as much as anything, those things have resonated and I've been able to derive an income from them and, you know, until I've kind of exhausted the process probably and then I'm sort of up shit creek again. But, um, you know, <laughs> um, it, 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 I, I have to say that divine providence has been a large part of of the journey, if I, and I know that's sort of probably too much to say these days, but I, I do think um, you know you, you you keep moving forward in something that you're doing, um, and somehow or other the doors, the gates, whatever, open along the way. Is there a, is there a way of kind of in, I, I I can completely empathise with the point you're making, which is that somehow. Things come together if you're if you're pushing in a particular direction. But I just wonder, are there particular tricks for making sure the doors open a little bit more frequently than they would otherwise, or the connections come a little bit more your way than than not, or is it just divine providence? No, I mean that in in a sense that's simplistic, but I don't think it's divine providence is a bit simplistic, but it shouldn't be totally left out of the equation. I think. Um, the craft of what you you develop a craft if you pursue something um, far enough and um, and with enough dedication um, you start to get get sort of reasonably okay at doing it and I think that begins to work for you and the more I suppose you devote yourself to the craft um, the better it, it works I mean I think a, a, a well-made thing, and I've been involved in making things, I like to call some of it sculpture, but a well-made thing has, a, has its own very particular resonance. And I think that 
will work for you if, if, if it's got that in, inside it, or my experiences it has. But, I mean, there's lots of fraught times in between that too. I was going to ask how you, how you make a living as a sculptor because I think we all know how hard it is to sell mm. artworks that hang on the wall. People mm. kind of get their head around, oh, I need something for my home, I can put that on the yeah. wall. If I like yeah. it, I might buy it. But sculpture's a way harder thing. Uh, you know, who has the space for sculpture? And even if you've got the space, yeah. how do you know if that's a work you want to buy? It's a, it's a brutal commercial question. How do you make a living as a sculptor? Well, look, I wouldn't say that I can't really claim that I am now. I mean, I certainly have. I think I've, 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 I've got to a point in my life where I have a stable marriage and, 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 and um, I'm able to go on doing what I'm doing because of what I have accrued. But then that, um, I suppose that, you know, that raises a whole lot of other issues which I have to contend with all the, all the time. Um, but um, I, figure it, I, I like the word abide. Um, and I think you, we, we need to, uh, you know, we need to sort of abide in ourselves somehow or other, find some way to live with ourselves and just to, you know, just go on trusting your process, I suppose. Um, but, but that's, I don't have a business formula for it. And, and look, I'm no business model. I mean, sometimes I've made quite good money from doing what I've, I've been doing and other times as a, like now, there's a dearth of it, really. Um, and But I just adapt to the circumstances. You know, I use, I, I use what is at hand to do what I need to do. I, I, I just keep doing stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> just, just to expand a little bit, no, no, not mm. at all, um, on what Chris's question. In the past, we have made money. Has it been through commissions or yes. shows? Or I've, done, or? <clears throat> I've done commissions. I mean, I've even had a glorious time where people would just sort of turn up at the workshop and pay, you know, buy things directly from me because they, I don't know, they'd heard something or, or other. And, you know, now when I think about it, that was sort of, I mean, nowadays, especially in these COVID times, that seems sort of highly unlikely. But I mean, that that was what was happening, and 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 I thought, well, this is rather good, you know. Like I didn't, I never, it never changed the way in which I was working. I have always sort of made things in exactly the same way. Um, but you know, there, there certainly was a time when people would walk through the door, and they were people that had the money to buy things, which sort of kept me, you know, reasonably comfortable. The, the studio is such a beautiful place. That you could almost charge uh, entry uh, for it. Yes, well, that's, that, I might have to resort to that. <laughs> Tell us though, what what's the what, what do you what have you named your studio? Okay, all right. So. In 2011, um, I, I put together a, a, a monograph on on my work, and when I up to that time, and I, by 2000, I'd, I'd started really working seriously from 1979. You know, the, the, the commitment was was really on from then, um, and you, you know, you you build up a reasonable body of work. Um, and but when it came to titling the book. I, I thought, 
uh, you, you try to get at some sort of truth in what you're doing, I think. Um, you know, what is it that you're actually doing? And it seemed to me that what I was doing was spending time. And time actually was really the material that I'd been chewing through. And I chewed through a great deal of it. And so I, 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 I titled the book Spent Time. And um, some years later, um, it occurred to me in the studio that had accumulated all the, the makings of many, many years that the studio, and I, look, I, I, I was influenced by that Orphan Pamuk, the Turkish writer's wonderful book, um, The Museum of, what is this museum of love? Or, I, think, I think that's what it was called. It was a beautiful idea. It was about a... Um, documenting a romance that he'd had in, 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 in great detail and he dedicated this place to, you know, quite an ineffable sort of experience. And I thought, well, it, one day it occurred to me that what I've created is a museum of spent time. So I made a little sign and I hand carve it and all this sort of thing. And I, it wasn't like I wasn't sort of wanting to create a logo or advertise myself or anything, but I just thought, well, it is. <laughs> that kind of amused me too, Chris. I mean, you've got to kind of amuse yourself. Oh, absolutely, you have. I, I always think when I'm creating, the, the, the audience I'm creating for is, is me, first of all, yeah. Yeah. because you've yeah. got to enjoy and appreciate your If other people want it too, that's great. But first yeah. of all, it's you. And if it's amusing yeah. you... Yeah. Absolutely. You've got to live with yourself. And, and that probably is the hard, the greatest challenge in life, I, I, I find, living, living with the self. It's a kind of an inquiry that is comfortable sometimes, especially when cash is flowing and very uncomfortable when it's not. I'd love to chat to you about, uh, I'm guessing it's one of your most famous works, The, the Conversation at, at Bathurst. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. And I know it dates back to, what, I think about 1985. It's, and um, for people listening in, it's, it's, a, it's a huge piece um, carved out of sandstone. I wish I could say I'd seen it myself. Um, and I think, if I'm right, it shows four figures kind of gossiping, chatting to each other. Is that is that a fair yes. description of it? Yes. Um, um, it, it, it is four fairly monolithic, gender-neutral, race-neutral figures. Ahead of its time. Sorry? Ahead of its time. Well, like, in a sense, I mean, I, when I, I went through Sydney College of the Arts and at a time when... The figure was really anathema to the place. The idea of um, drawing and the figure, all these things, all these old modes of making art were deemed to be exhausted. And so, and you know, there was all sorts of new the new technologies coming online, which are far more interesting. But it, you know, it it seemed to me that as you relinquish that knowledge about one thing, like the human figure. It sort of diminishes in it sort of it's it, it's it's its value is diminished and in, in many ways I think as we sort of head into this age of artificial intelligence increasingly we are probably in the process of replacing ourselves and maybe that's the only solution to existence that is is possible now and um, sorry I'm probably getting a bit divergent here okay. um, but look anyway to, 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 to try to bring it back to where you asked for yeah so conversation it, it seemed to me it, it was a bicentennial sculpture and 
Um, it seemed to me in 1988, inclusive, involved conversation was going to be an integral part to how we as people dealt with the world as it was then unfolding, which already was showing all its all the signs of many of the challenges we now face. And I thought, well, you, you know, like, I mean, how do you put a value on conversation? I suppose, first of all, you kind of, you make something and call it conversation. My idea was that if I build this thing or carve this thing, which generations of children could grow up clambering over, then the word conversation might resonate for them. And the idea might become emblematic in their existence, that conversation is actually something of value. And I think, you know, in a way, a solid static object, it works, um, um, struggling for the words, um, it, it, um, it, it works by osmosis in a way, in, in its own time. It sort of sits there doing nothing but being. And by just going on existing, it is telling a story in a way. Yes. So hopefully this inert, inanimate object conversation is raising, was beginning to raise the value of conversation, if that makes well, sense. I, the reason it struck me is it seems to me that its role now is more important than it's ever been. And, and the art of conversation is probably at a, a low point since since sort of humankind walked on this planet and our ability to actually exchange ideas and engage with us is so it's been replaced by sound bites and tweets and yeah. uh, headlines and the idea of sitting down with somebody and discussing an idea yeah. I, I think i think it's a beautiful work and i just think it's so important that it's, it's a it's a it's a work that everybody should look at and think yeah. about because Thanks now we need conversation if, and if i can just sort of add in i recently went back out there um, to Bathurst, and in 1988, I moved. My young family, or my young family, uh, moved out there, and I I was proposing this work, and you know I was wanting to consider the context. Now Bathurst is one of the oldest, or it is the oldest inland city in Australia, and in the centre, in the formal centre of the the city, is a monument to the surveyor, a bronze monument to the surveyor explorer, George Evans, who the, the, the didactics on the monument tell us discovered the Bathurst Plains in 1815. that overlooks the fact that the Wiradjuri people have been living there for a long time. But Evans stands on, um, on this um, a, a plinth and at his feet is kneeling beautifully modelled, classically modelled, uh, an Indigenous um, guide. And as a young man going out there to Bathurst, I sort of felt a certain sort of indignation about the, the status that this seemed to portray the Indigenous figure in, especially as in Bathurst itself, which was the site of the only declared frontier war, the Indigenous people actually put up a, a you know, they're, they're, they're lead, one of their great warriors, Windradine, you know, with this exceptional figure, actually, you know, heroic figure. Um, <clears throat> but I, so I thought that, the, that this 
kneeling figure was really problematic in this composition. I, I want to bring the whole deal down from the plinth and I've converted the kneeling figure into one of the members of the conversation. I don't think people up there actually realise this, but um, <laughs> during that trip, that was it that happened in March, I travelled on to Boree, just outside of Moloch, and I found this very interesting. There is this, a, a, a ceremonial gravesite of an Indigenous um, guide who, whose name was Uranai, who travelled with Major Thomas Mitchell in the 1840s up through Queensland. And Mitchell so revered this man and his extraordinary knowledge of the land, how to pass through it and, and languages. I think, you know, usually they had two or three languages and they could get so far in territories. But Uranai just... He, he was, um, Mitchell in his journals eulogises this, this man as just totally indispensable. And it struck me. And, and so Mitchell paid for the ceremonial burial place, which is also etched by carved trees in the same area by the people. But it struck me that this, the figure, in this sculpture, which I took umbrage with in in the eighties, was was not actually um, was, was probably inspired. The sculpture was made in nineteen twenty, and it was probably inspired by the sculptor reading the journals of um, Mitchell, and rather than denigrating um, Indigenous life by even just including him on that plinth. He'd actually honoured a way of life. Now, I couldn't read that in 1988, yeah. um, but it's still uh, that that sculpture sort of was a backdrop to what I was doing. I'll, I'll <laughs> tell you, Stephen, what, what those, that, that piece reminded me of, um, because they're, they're very big, kind of powerful monolithic mm. sculptures, um, powerful in lots of senses. I, I'll tell you what it made me think of, the those beautiful sculptures on, uh, I think it's Easter Island, um, <coughs> created by the Indigenous people, all looking out to sea, and they each represent a god. And, and they're, they're poignant because... Of course, the, the people of Easter Island didn't make it, and their solution to the hardship they were enduring was to build these sculptures. Yeah. And I can sort of see an alien race arriving many years from now, no human beings around, looking at this sculpture, thinking that was the solution. Conversation, if yeah. only they'd learned to talk to each other, maybe they'd still be here now and <laughs> we yeah. are human yeah. Sculpture remains. Actually, well, um, Chris, that's a fantastic observation, mm, mm. And, uh, and it brings us to a, to a close for this <laughs> for this conversation. I'm just getting going. <laughs> we'll uh, so we will uh, we will continue having a chat um, after we uh, we sign off. So uh, thanks for coming in today. Well, look, I yeah. hope we've got something from that. That's no, of, look, of I, use. I, um, I think I think it's been great insights mm. into into your creative process, but also your observations. Chris. Thank you very much, Stephen. I completely agree. It's, it's wonderful hearing the way you use your kind of, you use your own spirit and gu you're guided by what you think is right. Well, and, look, and I'd love to go on because, <laughs> you know, like the Easter Island thing, there's a sort of a commonality in the thread of what I do. If you get two massive blocks of stone and carve them yourself, you are challenged by the sheer labour of, of that. And so you're going to, you know, you know, you're going to echo 
other people working in similar circumstances, really, which, you know, in a sense, I was out there. And yeah. Uh, back then. So, yeah. so thank, thank you very much, Stephen. Yeah, yeah thank Wonderful. you. Lovely to meet you. So that was the amazing Stephen Hart. In fact, Paul and I are so enamoured by the insights he's given us. We're going to hear more from Stephen Hart as a bonus episode in the middle of next week. Mm-hmm.